We are starting a new sermon series this morning uh, on the book of Galatians. It's actually an epistle or a letter. Um, This is a New Testament uh, book of the Bible. And the theme for this series is going to be freedom in Christ. As you will find um, pretty much from the beginning, this is clearly a theme woven throughout this letter written by the Apostle Paul, freedom in Christ, calling people out of slavery to sin and into the freedom of the Christian faith rested in Jesus Christ. But before I read the the first bit of Galatians for us, here's how I want to give you some context for what's going on. I want to give you some general context about the epistles in the New Testament and how they relate, especially to the book of Acts. I know that might sound weird because we're not studying Acts, but the, the gospels, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they essentially tell the story of Jesus, his coming into the world, his life, his, his death, his resurrection, and ultimately uh, his ascension into heaven. And um, from the gospels, we move into the book of Acts. And the book of Acts tells the story of what happens after Jesus ascends into heaven. In other words, it tells the story of how the gospel or, or how the church grows and expands and moves into new territory after Jesus' ascension. And Acts is foundational for this reason. The book of Acts is foundational because it records the expansion of the gospel across new borders and barriers. And the epistles, particularly those written by Paul, the apostle Paul, they show how, the, how Paul was used to carry the gospel into these new various settings through the letters that he wrote to churches in those cities or those places where he planted churches. And so he goes out into these places, uh, particularly in the book of Acts. He proclaims the good news of Jesus. A community forms. This community centers on also proclaiming this good news, but also living out the fullness of light in light of the fullness of life in light of the good news of Jesus. But here's what happens. As the gospel goes into these new places, there are new issues that come up. New situations arise that the the church has to think through and has to to deal with. And as the gospel is presented in these various cultures, it brings up questions, problems, situations that ultimately reflect the human condition. And that's a really important point because as we study the letter to the Galatians, we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking, how naive, how superficial, how weak of faith those Galatians were. What we want to keep in mind is that what Paul, the Apostle Paul is addressing is actually a shared human condition. That's true for the whole of Scripture. That, that helps us, I believe, in our reading of Scripture. Yes, there are specific nuances and There are differences in context, but ultimately there is a shared human condition between us as modern day readers of the text and those um, who Paul was writing to in his day. And so the gospel, this good news, this universal truth comes into these new territories and we learn about how it um, surfaces all kinds of stuff as the, the gospel meets Um, human condition, how human beings respond to it, and then how Paul unpacks the gospel to apply it to all of life. And and that's really the theme of the epistles, and that's true for Galatians. What Paul is doing um, is he's taking the good news of Christ 
and showing how it applies to every area of life. So with that as some context, we'll do a little bit more background talk uh, after I read the passage, but that gives you some context, hopefully, to at least situate you with the letter to the Galatians and its placement in the New Testament. All right, we're going to look at the first 24 verses, so um, chapter 1 this morning. Let me uh, go ahead and read Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicily, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it, they only were hearing it said, he used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, We have just read from the Word of God. We pray that you would make this Word meaningful to our lives. We pray that you would connect it to our hearts. And we pray that you would use um, this study that we're going to do of Galatians to clarify the gospel for us, not in some abstract way, but so that our lives might actually be changed. And we pray that you would bring about this change regardless of where we find ourselves in the moment, believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, I mentioned that I had started watching uh, the series Chernobyl, which is a 
retelling, a reenactment of um, what happened with the Chernobyl nuclear power plant disaster in 1986. Uh, and I since have finished the series, but I wanted to share with you one illustration um, that I think helps set up the letter to the Galatians for us this morning. There's a scene in which this nuclear scientist, this woman, uh, travels to a particular hospital where um, some of those who had been affected by uh, the radiation were taken. And they are suffering uh, immensely from radiation poisoning. Most of them um, end up dying. But there is a woman, the wife of uh, a man who um, is being treated, um, and she finds her way to the hospital, and she begins going into his room to talk with him, to see him. But it gets to a point where his, and I don't know that this is actually true in real life, that you can get radiation poisoning from someone else. I think I read that that's not actually true, but the illustration works within the storyline of the TV show regardless. So if it's not true, don't blame me. I didn't write it. Um, so what happens is they eventually essentially quarantine him. They put him um, within plastic sheeting, and um, she's told, his wife, that uh, she, if she's going to speak with him, she must remain outside of the plastic sheeting. But her love for him compels him, and so she constantly goes uh, inside the plastic sheeting, is touching him. Um, but it gets to the point where this nuclear um, scientist is going around. She wants to particularly talk with those who were involved in um, the explosion uh, that night to get a better understanding of what happened. And when she walks, she walks by this one room, she sees the, the, the woman, the wife of this man, inside the plastic sheeting, talking with him and touching um, him. And so this nuclear scientist immediately runs in. She runs inside the plastic sheeting. She yanks the wife out, yanks her out of the room, and pleads with her to no longer go um, that close to him because of what the consequences could be. And from there, the nuclear scientist begins to yell at the nurses in the hallway I'm telling them that they must not allow people to do that. Well, the Apostle Paul is doing something similar as he starts the letter to the Galatians this morning. He is giving a warning. He is wanting to yank people back, to call them back out of danger into safety. And what I want to do in our time together this morning is I want to consider what the issue is. Like, why is Paul so bent out of shape? Because even from me reading um, the first chapter, you probably uh, got a, a sense of that right away, that Paul is bent out of shape. He's going off here uh, in this first chapter. And so we're going to consider the issue. Like, what, what's, what's his, his, his issue? Why is he so upset and emotional about this? And then we're going to uh, consider his response. So the issue and his response. And then finally, we're going to ask the question, is he overreacting? Is Paul overreacting? reacting. So let's consider the issue. Let's do a little bit more background um, to, for this letter. So Galatia was a Roman province uh, in Asia Minor. Think modern-day Turkey. Um, that's where Galatia was located. Galatia was a region um, in Turkey. Uh, and it was the place of Paul's first missionary journey. So throughout Paul's uh, ministry, he uh, embarked on three missionary journeys and he visited Galatia during his first. And what he did during these journeys or these trips is that he would proclaim the good news of Jesus, form communities, churches, 
And then he would move on to another city to do the same thing. And then as we talked about before, as I set up the, the reading of the scripture, um, he would then stay, he would maintain correspondence with them. As he would hear things, he would write letters to these churches, for example, the letter to the Galatians. And the question at the heart of what is going on in Galatians, and really at the heart of Christianity at this point in its history, is this. On what basis are Gentiles included? So in other words, on what basis are non-Jewish people, because Christianity flowed out of Judaism, Christianity is built upon Judaism, on what basis are non-Jewish people included in the church? This is the occasion of the letter. And more specifically, um, there were converts, um, those who became believers and followers of Jesus uh, in the church in Galatia. And um, some theologians refer to them as Judaizers. And what this group, these Judaizers, believed was that Jesus is important. Jesus really did live. He really did die. Um, he really did rise again. It's, it's important to believe in Jesus for the purposes of faith. However, you must also fully embrace and adopt Jewish law. Now, I think this is going to be a helpful distinction for us. It's somewhat superficial, but I, I think it still remains helpful in thinking through um, theology. Uh, so you could think of three categories for the law in the Bible. The first category is the moral law. God's moral law is rooted in creation. Think things like the Ten Commandments. Um, the moral law is binding for all time. But beyond the moral law, we encounter what we could call ceremonial law and civil law within the life of Israel's history in the Old Testament. And the ceremonial laws and the civil laws were unique to Israel in history. And so the ceremonial laws would have included things like circumcision, dietary laws, such things as those. And so what happens now, remember, the gospel's going into new territory, it's crossing borders, it's crossing barriers, and it surfaces everything that it detects uh, in effect. And one of the things that's, that's surfacing here in the early church is, all right, what about these people who are not culturally Jewish? What is expected of them? What is required of them? And these, this particular group, the Judaizers, they insisted that, yes, they must believe in Jesus, but they also must basically become Jewish. They must adopt uh, Jewish customs, such as circumcision and those kinds of things. This is why Paul is so bent out of shape. This is the issue, because what Paul claims is that the gospel that he received, we'll talk more about that in a few moments, the gospel, the good news that he received, the content of it, emphasized that we are saved, that we find favor with God, that we come into relationship with God only, simply based on faith in Jesus. In other words, Jesus plus nothing else. And the Judaizers are reformulating it. Their formula is it's Jesus plus something else to really be in, to really have favor with God. And so this is basically the issue that we have here. And so Paul wants to write to the Galatians and say, 
wait a minute. Don't believe this. This is not the gospel that you received. And this is dangerous. And so he's calling them back. He's calling them out of danger. What about Paul's response? And so these, these Christians, these believers here in Galatia, they're young. They're, they're searching. They're trying to figure things out. They had received the gospel from Paul, but now they are um, receiving a contradictory message. What is Paul's response to them? Well, Paul wastes no time getting into the heart of the gospel in this letter. He briefly summarizes the gospel in the greeting. Look at verse 4. What did Jesus do for us? He gave himself for our sins. So for Paul, at the heart of the Christian faith, at the heart of good news is sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus. It's substitution that he, he did this for us. And for, the word that Paul uses here, it means on behalf of or in place of. So substitution is at the heart of Paul's message. Jesus did all that needs to be done. The work is completed. It's done. Along with this, we learn that at the heart of the Christian faith is rescue. Now, this is why, um, this is where the human condition comes into play. Because what the Christian faith, what the gospel, the good news of Jesus insists, is that we are flawed as human beings. Now, let me clarify. The, The Christian faith, the Christian story does not begin with human beings as flawed beings. It begins with creation, with human beings being created gloriously and whole intended for fullness of life with God, with others, and in the creation, the world that God had made. But the Christian story tells us that we rebelled against God's plan, his good intentions. And we've been talking throughout the service in terms of disordered love, and that's really at the core of our human condition. That humans love themselves more than God, and obviously love ourselves more than others. And this was not the life that we were meant for. And so when our loves become disordered, life can no longer flourish in the way intended by God. So what what we're saying here, what Paul is um, bringing to bear uh, on these Galatians is that if we are going to be truthful about the human condition, if we're going to have an accurate understanding, assessment of what it means to be human, we have to admit that we are not what we were meant to be. You know, we we could use a whole host of words. Broken, disordered, distorted, corrupted, polluted. And apart from God, we are destined for death and separation from him. That's hard to accept. it, It could be that you have grown up in the church and you are incredibly familiar with this message, and so it's not offensive to you any longer. And it may be because you maybe only interact with the gospel on a superficial level, because I think that for all of us, in some way, shape, or form, on some level, we still receive the gospel as offensive. And, and that's okay. You know, that, that's how truth often works, isn't it? That's often a uh, 
an effect, an impact that truth has on our lives. Truth is not always easy to receive and to accept. And Paul is willing, and we'll talk more about this when we wrap up, Paul is willing to speak truth that may even be offensive because of his deep love for these people. And so at the heart of the Christian faith is the fact that human beings are sinful. But from there, Paul, well, actually, uh, going back, jumping up to verse 1 now. So verse 4 was the greeting. In verse 1, Paul um, refers to the fact that Jesus Christ was raised by God the Father. And so do you see the picture that's coming together even in the first four verses of Galatians? It's a picture of the fullness of the gospel. He's hitting on each uh, important aspect of Jesus' story, his death, but now his resurrection as well. This is the content, the stuff of the Christian faith. This is the content, the stuff of our belief, and it matters. It's going to be a point that we make throughout this series. What we believe matters. It not only matters um, just in terms of belief, but it matters for how we live because whatever we believe inevitably shapes how we live. And this really gets at why Paul is so bent out of shape. Beliefs matter. Beliefs have consequences. Verse 6. There's no thanksgiving here after the greeting. All of Paul's other letters, they contain some form of thanksgiving, of Paul thanking God for something or giving thanks for that particular church. But we don't get that here in this letter here. It's, there's an urgency here. He jumps right into the issue. There's no time for pleasantries. Paul, Paul is laser focused here. Because to abandon the gospel for Paul is to abandon God himself. The Galatians are in danger of abandoning grace. First time I've used that word in this sermon. What is grace? Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is getting from God what we don't deserve. It's a gift. And what Paul recognizes is that if the church in Galatia, if they go further in adopting this message that the Judaizers are bringing into the church, they are going to abandon grace because the gospel is no longer going to just simply be about what Jesus has done. It's going to be about, sure, what Jesus has done, but also what I must do, how well I must follow the laws and the rules. And like we said, that has grave consequences. Verse 7, what does Paul say about this message of the Judaizers, this different gospel? He says that it's actually no gospel at all. It's not just a distortion of the gospel, it's a reversal of the gospel. It's not just like they're playing around a little bit and Paul can step in and tweak it and say, all right, here's a good bounty. No. This is no gospel. The the formula is Jesus plus nothing else. Is Paul overreacting? That's the question that we're going to think about in our remaining time. Is he overreacting? 
Verses 8 and 9, take a look at those. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. In case it wasn't clear the first time, in verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul is calling down a curse. He literally is saying they can go to hell. He's not messing around. This is serious for Paul. Is he overreacting? Well, as we start to address this question, I think it's helpful for us to go back to Paul's personal story because that's actually what he does here. Beginning in verse 11 and really through verse 24, um, the remainder of the chapter, he rehearses his personal story of how he met Jesus and who he was and what he was like before that. I don't want to just assume that you know Paul's story, but what is incredible about Paul is that prior to coming to know Jesus and becoming a guy who started churches and proclaimed the good news and cares this so much, this, this much about the content of the Christian faith, he was actually a guy who hated the Christian faith. He hated the church to the point of persecuting the church and killing Christians because of what they believed. And so there was a time in Paul's life where, to some degree, he could relate to the message that this group is bringing into the church. Now, he would have had no place for Jesus in the formula, but he would have definitely appreciated the emphasis on, you must adopt these cultural customs. You must become Jewish, really, to be a full person and to have belonging uh, before God. But Paul had a radically shattering experience. He's walking on the road to Damascus, and the risen Jesus meets him. And Paul is no longer the same from that point forward. Now, I want you to think content-wise how revolutionary this was for Paul. Because Paul, the way that we could summarize his theology and how it ended up being lived out was that, as we said, all right, here are the rules, here are the standards, obey them, live according to them, and you will flourish. He meets Jesus and receives a contrary message. And so it's interesting to me how Paul writes, um, he says how um, he was set apart, starting verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach to him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then he goes on to talk from there. Paul had to take time. He needed, and right after his conversion story in Acts 9, I believe it is, um, Paul has to just simply take time for a few days to process, to take all of this in. This was revolutionary. He had to reconsider everything. And I think it boils down to this question, what can I boast in? As I look at my life, as I assess my life, what can I boast in at this point? Because it used to be that I believed that 
all of my following of the rules, of living according to the standards, that was where Paul derived his personal worth and value, his security in his relationship with God. And he meets Jesus, and that message, it's messing with Paul. It's totally messing with him. It wrecks his life in a glorious way, in a good way. But Paul, we, we can't uh, overemphasize this. We can't overlook it. This is what the gospel does as it surfaces things, as it moves into new lives, new communities, new territories, new borders. It surfaces stuff and it wrecks our lives in a glorious way. And so the gospel necessarily must wreck our lives, meaning that it deconstructs and then puts back together. And Paul, during that time period, was in deconstruction mode. Oh my goodness, what, if, if this is now what is true, how do I examine my past? Where do I find my, my worth, my value? What do I boast in? And through this process, through this reconstruction spiritually in Paul's life, he embraces the freeing message that it is entirely based on Jesus. That Paul's self-worth, his value, his security and relationship with God is all safe because of what Jesus has done. That's Paul's personal story. And, and you see what he's doing here? This is the beautiful thing about the Christian faith. The, the, the Christian faith is both objectively true and it's subjectively experienced. All right? There, there's universal objective truth that is true for all people at all times, but it also has a personal impact on us. And Paul is caught up in the, in the middle of that. And now as he writes to the Galatians, this is what he's unpacking. He's bringing the universal truth of the gospel to bear, but also his own, own subjective story. That when you believe this, when Jesus comes into your life, your life gets transformed and it can happen for you too. Remember that it has happened. You're in danger. Come back to safety. Come back to the formula of Jesus plus nothing else. Now, is Paul overreacting? Our culture is allergic to doctrine, to truth, to truth statements, to theology. We prefer to go light on doctrine in order to be as inclusive as possible. And it's understandable, right? It's understandable why we're prone to do this, because we want um, to be inclusive. We want to see as many people as possible experience fullness of life in Christ. But truth matters. Truth matters. I, I remember seeing a, a church sign once, a sign out front of a church, and it said, deeds, not creeds. And I, I wanted to drive my car off the side of the road. But then I thought, well, why am I going to uh, harm myself because of their sign? So I didn't drive my car off the side of the road. But that statement is completely illogical, because guess what? That is a creed. You can't say things like that and for them to not be truth statements or creeds. The better approach in life is to acknowledge, look, we all make truth statements, right? It's inevitable. 
It's part of living in the world. It's part of being human. We all must make truth statements, but let's evaluate the truth statements that are being made, not just simply tell people they can't make truth statements because it's impossible. It's an impossibility. And not only is that create a truth statement, it's actually just simply another form of, I believe, the kind of religion that they are wanting to oppose. And I would describe it as moralism. Morals are good. Morals are really good. Uh, morality is beautiful. Morality is God's moral law. It's um, coming into conformant with God's moral law, the way we were intended to live as humans. When we do that, we find our stride in life. Moralism, on the other hand, is bad. Moralism is saying, all right, I am going to find my personal worth. I'm going to find my security. I'm going to find favor with God by being really good at living up to the moral standards that are a part of my faith. And when you say deeds not creeds, first of all, it is a creed, but second of all, it leads to just another form of moralism, that if you don't believe this way, then you're on the outside. Do you see how truth statements work? We, we all make truth statements, and we all, whether we want to accept it or not, are exclusive in the truth statements we make in some way, shape, or form. We come back to the human condition. And, and this is really what it all boils down to. What do you believe about human beings? I, we, I was in a conversation with somebody the other day, and we were talking about um, sin and what's wrong with the world. And uh, I remembered a, a, a quote from G.K. Chesterton, who was a Christian uh, thinker and writer, and he said that sin is the one doctrine that doesn't need to be proved. And what he meant by it is that it's because it's in your face all the time. It's proven as we look out at the world, we hear the news, we look into our own lives and consider what others have done to us. This is what the Bible calls sin, and its root is disordered love of God, ultimately, and of others. This is the human condition. And if that is true, the question that follows is, how are we fixed? How are we changed? And what follows from the Christian faith is that we cannot repair ourselves. We cannot. We are too broken. We are too dead in our sin. We require rescue. It's offensive. It's offensive for me. It's hard because I, I want to resist that. And I want to say, and, and I do this practically in my life. Even though I'm up here preaching this message about grace, so often practically in my life, I resist grace and say, no, Jesus, I, I'm not that desperate. I want to contribute to my well-being. I want to contribute to my right standing before God. It is you, but it's also me doing what I feel like I need to do. It's hard. It's offensive. But if we add anything to Christ as a requirement for acceptance with God, we reverse the order of the gospel and destroy its message. Doctrine matters. What we believe matters. The stuff, the content of our faith matters. And if you consider yourself not to be a person of faith, the stuff of your belief system matters. 
And it all matters because, as we've said, it leads to a certain kind of living. And here's what I find encouraging about the Christian faith. Because of all of these things being true, the Christian faith is actually incredibly inclusive. Yes, it's exclusive as it pertains to Christ. There's this hard, offensive message that the, the, the only way to God is through faith in Jesus Christ. However, it is incredibly inclusive in that, it, in that everybody is invited and welcomed to believe that and to be transformed by Jesus. There aren't levels of sinners in which we would say, okay, that, um, that person is uh, outside of Jesus' saving grace and work. They could never come to know him. No, the reality is, is that the Bible puts us all in the same category. It's not to say that some sins aren't worse than others. That's not what I'm talking about. This, what I'm talking about is something different. I'm just talking about as people, the gospel is the greatest leveler. The gospel puts us all on equal footing, both in bad news and in good news. The bad news that we are, is e- we are equally sinful, but the good news that we uh, have access to redemption, each and every one of us. And the reason for that is because the rescue comes from the outside. Now, here is where we bring this to a close and really get practical about how this um, leads to actually living in the world. I've said the gospel is the great leveler, puts us all on equal footing. But what happens as Jesus' work comes into our life, like it did with the Apostle Paul, is that it begins to reorder our loves. First, we receive God's love, and we begin to see it, experience it in fresh ways, how deep, how wide it is. But then also, our hearts are reordered in that we are given a new ability, a new power to love God in response because of what God has done for us in Christ. But then also we are empowered to love others rightly. Why is that? It's because, you know, on the one hand, one of the critiques of the Christian faith and other religions and faith as well is its exclusive nature. But it doesn't have to be exclusive in a certain way, in the way that we're talking about, about the gospel being accessible to everyone. Because this message that Paul is so insistent upon, he's so bent out of shape about, is a message that leads to humility. And it all comes down to this, I believe. It's a message that leads to humility. There is no place for pride. That actually was the deconstruction That happened in Paul's life and must happen in the life of every follower of Jesus. Our pride is broken down and deconstructed because we realize I don't contribute anything to my right standing with God. Wow. There's no place for boasting. There's no place for pride. And it humbles us. And what does humility do? Humility enables us to receive the love of God as a gift because of what Christ has done. But it also enables us to love others as our pride is, is consistently and regularly deconstructed. And the reason why that's the case is because we no longer have to manipulate others or use others to compare ourselves to. You see, when, it's Jesus, when, when, it's, when Jesus isn't even part of the formula, or if it's Jesus plus something else, what do we do? Whatever that something else is, 
We're constantly evaluating our well-being in life based on how well we're living up to that something else, that standard. But we inevitably also begin to compare ourselves to others. Oh, so-and-so over here, they don't, live, they don't live up to this standard. Look at what I'm doing. And, and, and it creates room for pride. But ultimately, in the Christian faith, there is no room for pride. Humility. And so as we look out at those outside the church, we can't feel like we are better than them. Rather, we receive the love of Jesus and love others and extend the love of Jesus to others in the hopes that they too might encounter this radical grace that deconstructs and then constructs a new spiritual life in Jesus. Practical living. What we believe affects the way we practically live. And this is why Paul is so bent out of shape. It's why he's yelling down curses. It's why he's telling people to go to hell. It's actually out of love. It's out of love. And it's out of a desire to guard the purity of the message of the gospel. And so I would encourage you with this. Increasingly in our culture, it is unpopular to really embrace content, stuff that we believe for our faith. But I want you to think about how that has practical implications for living. We actually can embrace what is true and not be people who hate others as a result because it all it comes back to this. The gospel is different. You, know, you notice how Paul, he says at that one point, talking about the, this message that the Judaizers are bringing, it's a different gospel. But then he says it's no gospel at all. Actually, what is beautiful about the Christian faith is that it unique and that it ultimately is different? We actually can embrace truth, but we can also do so in a way that empowers us to love God and others because it deconstructs our spiritual pride and reconstructs humility, life in Christ, as we become more at home with grace throughout our lives. And, and I think that's a helpful way of looking at the Christian faith that it is a lifelong journey of learning to live at home with grace. Grace is counterintuitive. As we said, grace is difficult to receive and accept. But ultimately, when we do, it changes our lives and it reorders our loves. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a church that guards the good deposit of the gospel I pray that we would not be afraid to proclaim its goodness and its purity because its purity is ultimately life-giving for ourselves and for the world around us. I pray that our posture toward the world would match the content of our faith. The content of our faith is grace. And I pray that we would have a graceful posture and response as we proclaim what is true about Jesus and your word. And our desire is that your word, your, that your gospel would be unleashed in the life of our church, unleashed in our lives, and unleashed in our city, in our communities. That people would be delivered out of slavery, of living for self, and brought into the freeing and liberating life that is found in Jesus, a life of receiving what one has do, another has done for us and learning to walk in his footsteps. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.